it's interesting. Like I'm realizing I'm feeling a little emotional and um, it's like this residual effect of this concert that I just went to on Friday night. I um, had a chance to drive to, to Vegas, which is my least favorite place in the world. <laughs> and see you two play at the Sphere, which was mind-bending. Has anybody been? Yeah, okay, right? Like, it's hard to describe this thing that um, you enter into this like space age. It's like the future of technology there. It's like mind-bending to like just from outside looking at this thing right there in the middle of Vegas, this enormous um, like screensaver that's happening in the middle of the city. <laughs> I was thinking if you were in a building and you were looking at that all day, you would get no work done. You just stare at the sphere all day. It's, it's pretty wild. But um, and it wasn't, I mean, I think it was like a lot to take in watching it all. And, and a lot of the, the emotion that I feel is like more residual after the fact. But um, some incredible imagery. In fact, my, my son, I took Gabe with me to see it. And, um, and, you know, I'm like sad to say he's not much of a U2 fan. He would rather listen to Bono's son's band um, than, than listen to U2, which his son's band is awesome, by the way, Inhaler, if you haven't heard them. But, but anyways... But Gabe was so moved by just the, the visual symbolism and the depth of it. And I was thinking even just like at the, this is not much of a spoiler, if, but you can watch the whole thing on YouTube now. But um, at the start of this, you're like sitting in this incredible like cathedral space where it's like open to the sky and like birds fly in through the top. And you're in this like digital space, but as the concert begins and like the first kind of pulsating guitar hits of uh, that song Zoo Station, it like shakes the cathedral and it starts like cracking in between the blocks and like sand starts pouring out and then pretty soon light starts coming out and this like brilliant cross just emerges in the center of it and then the whole thing opens up and you're like what is this but the the power of that I was thinking the juxtaposition of seeing that in Vegas which to me is like <laughs> the 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 utmost like of artificial light, right? That, that you, I, I love how it, another Ted Lasso reference, but uh, Coach Beard's asked about Vegas and he's like, one day's fine, two days is perfect, three is too much. And you're like, Vegas is kind of like that, right? Like at first you're like, wow, it's beautiful. And pretty soon you're like, oh no, 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 this is depressing light. And, and what an interesting place to hold this concert where, you know, I think my most... Like the most impacting moment for me was they, you know, obviously this song one is such like an anthem of theirs. But as an intro, Bono said, and I thought, guys, wild what he can kind of get away with these days. He said, today I'm told is Candlemas, and it, which is a reference to the church calendar. On February 2nd, the church would bring unused candles into the church to be blessed. And it came at the very end of this season called Epiphany, which is a follow-up to Advent, that, that Christ comes, the light comes into darkness, and there's this celebration of the light. But this idea at Candlemas, you're, you're ending that and coming back into the darkness of Lent, back into the reminder of this deep longing that we live in a world that is still in so many ways in darkness, and Bono said, there's a huge hungry darkness out there in the world tonight. He said, I'm told that today's candle mass. And he says, there's a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot put it out. And then he says, anyone got a light? 
And, you know, this is going to sound maybe a little cheesy, but all of a sudden, like, all the lights start going on, right? Because we all do. We all, like, can reach into our pocket and pull out a light. And everybody starts turning their phones on. And I was, like, just shook by the image of it, like, in this space, in this dark space, this light just piercing the darkness. And I think about this image and to go, it really is such a powerful reminder. I think sometimes we live in this kind of in-between space where the darkness seems less dark and the light seems less poignant. And sometimes we need this reminder that yes, there is this hungry darkness out there. Vegas. (laughs) This hungry darkness with artificial light. My gosh, I was thinking next Sunday is like the culmination of everything that the world values, right? Because you know what's happening next weekend? Super Bowl. Super Bowl in Vegas. I mean, already you should see the preparations, right? They're like just ready to let like the debauchery begin. Sorry, that's so judgy of me. But if you want to know what human beings value deep down, just wait. Next weekend you're going to experience it, right? Is this the hope? I mean, I think it's so interesting that like when you walk through the streets of Vegas, all you smell is cannabis. Right? And to go, the, the, almost like the, the artificial light and the numbness. And I think that we have in humanity such broken hope, these like deep longings for something more. And, um, and the truth is, something, we need something that reaches beyond us, something that speaks a depth of truth and hope that reaches all the way down there. I, he sang a song that they rarely sing in concert called Love Rescue Me. It's, um, and uh, it's off of the album Rattle and Hum. And it's a song that they wrote with Bob Dylan, actually. And it, this line where it says, Love rescue me, come forth and speak to me. Raise me up and don't let me fall. No man is my enemy. My own hand imprisons me. Love rescue me. And this idea of what the gospel is about is this rescue of God, of his creation, a restoration, a redeeming of this thing that is broken all the way kind of down in its heart. That each one of us has that brokenness. And restoration is not this one group winning over another, but in fact, all people being led into this place of deep connection and love. Restoration. This is at the heart of this message, is this restoration of love. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And when I think about us as a church, as I think about us as individuals, as followers of Jesus, what are we here to do? That, to me sums up in so many ways our vocation, to be a light to the world, just simply that. And yet, it's going to shine so uniquely through each one of you. In Advent, we would say, Sunday after Sunday, this verse of Christ's where he speaks out and says, I am the light of the world, right? That idea that Jesus takes that light and illuminates us with that light, and then our lights shine. One of my favorite quotes by Frederick Buechner, and you've heard me use it before, but he says, the place God calls you to 
is this place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. That we're called to this vocation where we come alive. In fact, this like glorious beauty comes out of us. And yet in a way that is completely selfless and sacrificial. We burn like that, but for the sake of others. And my hope would be, I think, for us as a church, that as you're here and as you grow, that part of that growth is discovering just how that light looks coming through you. And again, how each one of us comes so uniquely. I've said this before, but each one of you is a word of God spoken only once. Each one of you has this unique imprint where like you are able, this like unique facet of God is able to shine through you. I had this experience one time where I was at the Getty and we were given this assignment that, that like if you were to put it in Latin terms, which makes everything sound deeper, we would call this visio divina, like a divine scene. And we were encouraged to go and find a painting that spoke to us, and, um, which is always interesting. Like I, I always feel like when I'm given these assignments, I immediately kind of go into my head and think, okay, I'm going to solve this puzzle. And what am I going to choose? And I'm always shocked when God actually goes... No, no, Jeff, here it is. Not this, but this. And oftentimes when I'm given something, it's a little bit of a contrast to what I feel like I want to brand myself as, right? Like, who's Jeff? How do I brand myself? And God's like, actually, Jeff, it's this. And so there's this painting that I came across, which is a Monet. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, like, why this? Except, I mean, I love Monet. I love Impressionism. And, um, but I was reading about this painting, and it was one of his first, and they were saying, when he came out with this, the Academy was not pleased. They, they looked at it, and they said, it's not finished. And he was like, no, no, that's it. It's done. And they're like, no, it's not. Like, look at it. It's like, you have so much more work to do. And I think... As I stared at that painting, it was like God was saying, that's you. This like seemingly unfinished painting. That there's something that God shines so uniquely out of that. I love, I mean, this is like, I think it was his home. Like he, he lived close to this. For, so for him, it was such a beautiful depiction of like his own identity. But that idea of looking into the light as it's rising this idea of that sort of unfinished beauty. And I thought, maybe that's just for, for Jeff, but I, I wonder if in some ways it, it invites each of us to ask that question. What does the light look like shining through me? There's a, a lovely quote by Thomas Merton where he says, discovering vocation means, um, does not mean scrambling towards some prize just beyond my reach but accepting the treasure of true self I already possess. Vocation does not come from a voice out there calling me to be something I'm not. It comes from a voice in here calling me to be the person I was born to be, to fulfill the original selfhood given me at birth by God. Allowing God to bring that to the surface. It, it takes a whole lifetime. In fact, none of us are finished until the end we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, but it's God who's at work in us to will and work to his good pleasure. 
And when God speaks to these things, he speaks to the deeper places in us, the deeper longings. Oftentimes, when, when we want to be known as something, it's something outward, it's something impressive. And, and the work that God is stirring in each one of us is oftentimes smaller than we would like. And it takes longer. But this is the way of good art. There's a, an article that I read a few years ago. It's more than a few years ago now. But it was written by an uh, uh, art historian from Harvard. Her name is Jennifer Roberts, and she wrote this article on what she called deceleration, and that this was what she was trying to teach her students, is how to slow down, that to understand art, she would give them this assignment and say, I want you to sit with a painting for three hours and just write down what you see. And you're thinking, oh man, that sounds exhausting, right? But sure enough, two hours in, people are like, oh wow, look at that. And like three hours later, like, Oh, wow, look at that. And this idea of decelerating, allowing us to really see and understand. And she says this, a couple quotes, so I'm going to read some of it to you, and I know that can be a little hard to process, but do your best to kind of take this in. She says, every external pressure, social and technological, is pushing students in the other direction toward immediacy, rapidity, and spontaneity. And against this other kind of opportunity, I want to give them permission in the structures to slow down. When I think about Lent, it's this 40 days in the wilderness. We follow Jesus into that space. And Jesus went in there following the Spirit into that space. This invitation to slow down, to like step back from the immediacy. She says, the virtue of patience was originally associated with forbearance or sufferance. It was about conforming oneself to the need to wait for things. But now that generally one need not wait for things, patience becomes an active and positive cognitive state. Patience no longer connotes disempowerment. Perhaps now patience is power. Isn't that interesting? I mean, do you follow that? So it's going like, it used to be this like, oh gosh, when is it going to come? Right? I, it's a goofy illustration, but I think of like Christmas specials. We would like wait for that one night that like Charlie Brown Christmas was coming on. Like that was like a big deal. You would wait for this day, right? And, and now you can just see it anytime. You just click, it's on your phone, whatever, right? Immediacy and how things almost lose their value in that immediacy. But this idea of now channeling that patience, you're channeling like muscles that most of us lack. This ability to, to temper those desires in ourselves. This idea of waiting, like linking that to power. And, and the reason I talk about this is, as we're going to see as we move into our passage today, it's a passage about waiting. It's about people, two people who gave their whole lives to waiting for a moment day after day after day for a promise waiting for it to be fulfilled. And then it happens. And for them, we see it's the end of the story. They become a part of something much greater. But this gift of waiting, we see that Luke has taken the time to tell these stories. What might otherwise have been missed or seem like a waste of time. 
turns out to be in light of God's kingdom, this practice of strength and faithfulness. I like this last, I'm going to give you one last quote. And this is uh, Jennifer Roberts quoting from this guy, um, David, and I don't know how you say his last name, Jocelyn. The art historian, David, has described paintings as deep reservoirs of temporal experience, time batteries, exorbitant stockpiles of experience and information. She says, I would suggest that the same holds true for anything a student might want to study at Harvard University, a star, a sonnet, a chromosome. There are infinite depths of the time to unlock that wealth. And that's why for me, this lesson about art, vision, and time goes far beyond history. It serves as a master lesson in the value of critical attention, patient investigation, and skepticism about immediate surface appearances. I can think of few skills that are more important in academic or civic life in the 21st century. And I would add to that, I can think of few disciplines more important in spirituality than learning to see with that deep patience. Because the truth is, as God works, it is a slow work. We long for God to do something immediate. God, come in and do something that's going to shake the building. And God does from time to time. But more often than not, God is doing a deep, slow work. The kind of work that produces lasting change. The kind of uh, transformation that endures. And when God moves, God seems to move slowly, unexpectedly, (laughs) humbly, and in a way that's nonviolent. When we respond, it's often the opposite of those things, drawing attention to ourselves. It's quick, it's fast, it's reactive, puts us in the center. And we create a sort of chaos when we try to do this. The way that God does this comes humbly and powerfully. These two characters in our passage we're going to look at are Simeon and Anna, and they come to us on the end of Epiphany, and they're going to speak about light. They're two prophets, and in very different roles. They've got very different stories. Simeon is this statesman, and then Anna is this widow. And I want to read our passage just a little bit longer today, so hang with me here. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, it says this. And when the days of their purification, according to the law of Moses, were finished... They brought him, Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written, the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice, according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which, by the way, is the poorest of sacrifices. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. The man was righteous and devout looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. 
Then Simeon blessed them and told his mother Mary, Indeed, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be opposed. And a sword will pierce your own soul and the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. You can see Mary kind of going like, wish she hadn't said that, right? Like, <laughs> like the first part was great, but, right? But here, I mean, this is, this is a word. This is a prayer. It's a prophecy. We're going to see what he's describing here unfold throughout the rest of the gospel and then into the book of Acts. I love how Simeon prays. You know, he moves into this place of intimacy, which says so much about his own relationship with God. He, he holds this child and he begins praying to God in a way that's so familiar. Now, master, you can dismiss your servant in peace. And I love how when people encounter this, they, they see not only what's before them, but in light of revelation, all that this entails. This child, the promise that was made to him personally, he gets to witness. He's drawn by the Holy Spirit into the temple, sees Jesus in this moment, says this beautiful prayer to God. He's at the end of his story. He's like, my life is finished. This, in so many ways, is his vocation, his moment that happens And he prays this vision over Jesus of what he's there to do. That he's come as this light of revelation. And I can imagine, like, as he's speaking this, the people around him are like, what? Like, this light of revelation to the Gentiles. People are like, excuse me? How about to Israel, right? It's a glory to Israel. A light to the Gentiles. In the midst of this Jewish custom, recognizing the law which Jesus is there to participate in as a child, this message comes in a world of oppression with Rome occupying Jerusalem at this time. This is Jesus, a light of hope for all of them and glory to Israel. The second story that Luke tells here, he follows up with Anna it says, there also was a prophetess, Anna, a daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was well along in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and was a widow for 84 years. She did not leave the temple serving God night and day with fasting and prayers. That moment, very moment, she came up and began to thank God and to speak about him to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had completed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The boy grew up and became strong, filled with wisdom, and God's grace was on him. Now these moments, like I said, these are in like obedience to the Jewish law that, that Jesus goes through, and his mother. She goes through a purification 40 days after the birth of a child. There's a, a necessary presentation of this child before God a dedication of this firstborn to the Lord's service. It's in the midst of these that these prophecies are given. It's interesting, you know, like Simeon in some ways is a contrast to the shepherds who are the first ones called in to witness this. The the Messiah is here, and I love how it goes first to the outsiders and brings them in. But Simeon is a righteous man. In fact, that same word referring to him as virtuous is spoken over Job, who was one of the most righteous. I love 
the, again, this, um, this message of scope that you see and what Simeon brings. This is the culmination of all that God has been doing up until now. It's the fulfillment of this longing. We've talked about how the prophets have foretold this. They've spoke this word as comfort, even though most of the people that are hearing it wouldn't live to see it. It was still this comprehensive message of redemption for everybody that works backward and forward throughout history. Jesus is the light. In Isaiah 60, these words written, arise, shine, for your light has come. This is a word to them and to us. Your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. We live in a world where the darkness is still hungry and yet the light has come. God has called us to this glory. And like I said before, sometimes we, we, when we imagine that for ourselves, we, we kind of go to the wrong things. When I've had this spoken out in me, it's, um, you know, I've had these couple of these times where I've had these words given to me. And they're all in, in situations where I'm a little uncomfortable, to be honest. I'm not much for like the high energy. Uh, some of you like love that, right? And I don't, so just for me as the introvert, I'm a little sensitive to all that. And like, um, I like the still small, low key voice of God, but, um, but I've had a couple of times where these words have come a little bit more specific, but both times I've really heard a strong word from God. The what was spoken over me was joy. And if I'm confessing deep down, I'm like, I prefer like brilliant. <laughs> you're like, you see God going, no, no, Jeff. It's not what we're talking about, right? But the, like as God speaks that into me, he's saying, this is how my light shines through you. It's joy. And, and so if I'm living a, light, a life that kind of keeps that back, right? I'm not shining that light. If I'm saying things that like draw attention to me, I'm not shining that light. I'm shining Jeff's light, so to speak, and to go the light of hope when it comes through, the glorious light. It looks like Christ. It draws real hope because it's a hope that transcends anything that I have to offer. Thank God. And when this light comes through each one of us, the texture of it, right, is going to be the texture of the spirit that shines. And I love this idea. It's glorious. What does God want? He, he wants your glory. He wants you to live lives of deep glory. And you've heard me say this before, but I love the Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which is this weight, substance, it's the opposite of the artificial light of technology, right? It's the, the weight of glory. That's the kind of thing that God wants to do through you. Real quickly about Hannah, or Anna. It's the same name, actually. But Anna is, you, you'd love to know her program that she's on, because she's probably 103 to 105, somewhere in there. So like, good genes in Anna. She's been fasting 
probably mourning for Israel, waiting and waiting and waiting, praying and praying and praying. You can imagine as people check back in with Anna and they're like, how's that working out for you, Anna? How's the prayer thing going? Still praying, still praying. Like, what is she doing wrong? It's like nothing. She's showing up in this place of surrender. This like dying to self. The power of those little prayers, which probably most people didn't see. And to go with, as we're called to live this life of shining and vocation, she's modeling something really powerful for us about perseverance and endurance, faithfulness. Somebody asked me that the other day. What is faithfulness? And I was thinking, I think it's Anna. Day after day after day in the temple. Day after day, faithfully saying these prayers. And like God is slow in his working, but I think in some ways because he knows we need the time. The time to exercise that muscle, that strength of patience. Talk about sitting for three hours. She's there for years and years in the temple praying. Tells us something about what God values. These are the stories he tells, right? He, he shines a spotlight on the stories that we would otherwise miss. The widow with the mites, putting that in. The small little gift, which Jesus is like, that's the big deal. That's the thing that makes heaven pause, like, wow. Not the bright, flashy lights. These people lived this life of faith, deep faith. And heaven notices. It's contributing to this greater story. It's our way of participating in the work that God has done. These little acts of faithfulness, these small, like, steps of change are are the way that it works. And Jesus is ultimately going to embody this for all of us. He's going to take and faithfully walk this path of suffering to the cross and hold up to the world the ultimate depiction of strength, the ultimate gesture of turning the other cheek to absorb all the darkness within himself. He who knew no sin becomes sin and conquers it I love that it's Easter is Patty's very, very favorite day of the year. I mean, I'm a Christmas guy, you know that, but Patty loves Easter. And it is this idea of this resurrection power that ultimately in the end transcends everything. That becomes our hope. And as we continue in a world that feels like sometimes it's getting darker, doesn't it? What do we do? Well, it's like Bono says Does anybody have a light? How do we shine that light? And living in this posture of surrender, yielding to this day after day after day, there's a deep work that's happening. We're going to go to the Lord's table, and as we go, we we go in faithfulness to this work. We receive these elements because they remind us the powerful sacrifice that God has done, and that our own lives become an act of obedience as we follow as we too take up our cross. Before we go, I, uh, 
as we kind of lead into this, I thought I would read this prayer. And uh, our worship band, you guys can come up if you'd like. But um, this is a, a prayer called Patient Trust by one of my favorite guys, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. And he says, above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We're impatient of being on the way to something, something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that is made by passing through some stages of instability. And then it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually. Let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you. And accept the anxiety of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete.